You may very well, like Nehemiah, have a mountain in your life that you think is immovable. You may be sitting next to him. That is, you may be married to a, to a man that you really don't feel like he appreciates you. Uh, he doesn't love you like he once loved you. That you find him maybe criticizing you more than he ever expresses love and affection for you. Or maybe he's thinking something very similar. Or maybe you find yourself in a situation in an office that you work in. Maybe you're a receptionist at a lawyer's office. And you find that the, the people that you work with are, are very critical and negative, and, and you've picked up that disposition. And in fact, the person that supervises you, you find, you find to be almost unbearable. You find them not to have much concern about you or the other people that they supervise. Uh, they throw their weight around in an unnecessary sort of way. And you found your heart becoming negative and, and critical toward them. In fact, when you think about work, that's primarily what you think about is the person that, that is over you and how much you could do better if you were in their position. How you may, might change things around. Well, Nehemiah knew what it was like to be facing what appears to be an immovable mountain. You know, Jesus told us that we had faith size of a mustard seed, we could say to this mountain, uh, be removed here and up and, uh, and cast into the sea. Now, he was speaking hyperbolically. Jesus isn't about geographical dislocations. He's about praying for circumstances and situations that seem to be virtually impossible. Praying for people that seem immovable, like a mountain. That's exactly the situation that he was in. He was burdened, overwhelmed with grief for the situation of his countrymen in Judah, in Judea. Uh, The city of Jerusalem had been overrun and it was in turmoil. Oh, there had been some exiles that had returned and they had built something of a temple, but the walls were still in disarray. The gates hadn't been rebuilt. The people were living in squalor. And the reason that they were in that condition is the man that he worked for had stopped all the building of the walls in Jerusalem, King Artaxerxes. King Artaxerxes was one of the most powerful monarchs in the ancient world, and Nehemiah was his cupbearer. Nehemiah was something of his right-hand man. Nehemiah knew him better than any person other than the queen. He tasted the king's food before the king would eat it. He Tasted the king's wine before the king would drink it. And there they would stand, there he would stand beside the king, and they probably had a kind of a relationship that exceeded the relationship of, his, of uh, the king's other advisors. And he was the only man that could lift the order that would allow Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And Nehemiah went to praying and fasting. Not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, not even two months or three months. But one day, unexpectedly, after four months, Nehemiah saw that mountain move. That's what I want to talk with you about today. I want to talk with you about when God moves a mountain as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. 
I want to begin in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 1, and read all the way through verse 8. Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him. And I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, If it please the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tomb, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house in which I will go. And the king gathered them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. Hudson Taylor said this, It is possible to move men through God alone, by prayer alone. It's a good saying, but if it gets right down to it, not many of us believe it. It's a lot easier for us to coerce, manipulate, stew, criticize, complain, work behind the scenes to try to manipulate things so that they're different. But I think Hudson Taylor is exactly right. It is possible to move men through God alone or through God by prayer alone. Solomon believed the very same thing. In fact, I think probably Hudson Taylor got it from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 1 says this, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. The king Artaxerxes was the most powerful man in the ancient world, a massive figure, a man who had the power of life and death. He could send an invading army and wipe out an entire civilization. And he stayed the building of the walls in Jerusalem and left the city in desolation and despair and left the city in the most fragile of conditions. But Artaxerxes is not pow more powerful than the one who sits on heaven's throne. And his heart is like a river. And God is able to turn that river whichever way he pleases. For four months, Artaxerxes lived in, in resistance to what Nehemiah wanted him to do. Nehemiah in chapter 1 had heard that the city was in turmoil, the city, was, the city was, was in desperate condition, and the people of God were living in squalor. His heart was burdened 
He loved that place and he loved those people. So what did he do? He set himself to fast and pray. Not for seven days or 14 days or 21 days or 35 days or 42 days or 49 days or 56 days. On and on and on he prayed. Fasting during much of that time. Praying that God would change the heart of the only man that could give him the opportunity to go there and do what God had put on his heart. And that was to rebuild the walls, to fortify the city, to bring some, to bring some cohesiveness to life there. I want you to notice that faith in God involves trusting in God's timing. Faith in God involves trusting in God's timing. Why didn't God do it like this? Why didn't God do it like that? Why didn't he get it done right when Nehemiah wanted him to? But Nehemiah didn't quit fasting and he didn't quit praying. Because faith doesn't put limits on God. Faith allows God to engage our prayers when he deems it best. The setting takes place in verse 1. It's in the throne room. And there is Artaxerxes, and seated beside him is his queen. And Nehemiah had, had kept up a, a good face in the midst of his fasting and praying. Because to go into the king's presence downcast was a very dangerous situation. Kings didn't like people that would bring them down. And if you were sad in the king's presence, often it would lead to execution. You'd be banished from the king's presence. So Nehemiah would pray and Nehemiah would serve. And Nehemiah served just like he had been serving before he got that, that terrible report about Jerusalem and the people there. But the burden had become great in Nehemiah's heart. And Nehemiah came into the king's presence and there was a sadness about his countenance. He had served the king probably for years. This was completely out of character for him. And so the king asked him, what's wrong? Why are you sad? You wonder, how could Nehemiah live with that burden for all that time? Fasting, praying, mourning, broken. Well, Isaiah says this, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. So when the king asked Nehemiah, Nehemiah, what's wrong? Nehemiah had to be very careful about his response. He had to be very cautious in what he would say. And so look with me in verse 3. The king says to him, or Nehemiah says to him, let the king live forever. His response is, it's wise. It's intelligent. He begins by acknowledging the king's greatness. And he says, why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lie desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? The mountain is about to be moved. The king asked the question that Nehemiah had been praying about. The king opened the door for Nehemiah to share with him 
What's on your heart? What would you like me to do? How can I be of assistance and help to you? Nehemiah had been a faithful servant. Nehemiah had been a good confidant. Nehemiah had, had been a consistent friend, apparently, to Artaxerxes. And when Artaxerxes sees him downcast and sad, his heart goes out to him. Because Nehemiah wasn't the kind of man that was manipulating the king or coercing the king or, or going behind the king's back to try and orchestrate circumstances and situations. Nehemiah had been doing exactly what Nehemiah should do day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. But on this particular day, God allowed Nehemiah's sadness to manifest itself in his countenance because God was ready to uproot a mountain. I want you to notice, secondly, that in moments like that, we need to be both prayerful and wise. When God opens the door, we need to be prayerful and wise. It might be that you've been praying for a husband who's been belligerent and belittling and distant for quite some time. And, and he says, honey, I, I think there's a gulf maybe widening between us. And you realize he's a little bit stupid, but he's finally come around to what you've known to be true for quite some time, but you've been praying. You've been serving him. You've been caring for him. You've been loving him. But that door unexpectedly opens, be wise and prayerful, whether it's in the home or on the job. So Nehemiah, notice the first thing he does is he prays. He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. A momentary prayer, a silent prayer. He, he, didn't, re, he didn't remove himself and go into his prayer closet. He prayed, God, make me wise. God, give me insight. God, be at work. Just in the quietness of his own heart, he lifted up a momentary prayer. And then he begins to unfold a plan that he had been making. You see, Nehemiah was not just praying, but he was also planning. He was planning and praying. And so Nehemiah was prepared when the king asked him this question. So look with me in verse 5. He says, he says to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? There's no time to figure it out now. He needs to have already prayed and planned. So he gives him a definite time. And then he says, I want you to send me and I want you to give me. I want you to send me back to my people. Here's how long I need to be there. This is what I need to make it. I'm going to need letters. I'm going to pass through hostile territory. They're going to ask me, who do you think you are and where are you headed? And I need letters from you. I need, I need protection from you. So I need letters to give to these rulers and to give to these governors that I'm on your business. I'm headed to Jerusalem to do what you're permitting me to do. And I need your equipment. I need your Timber. So write a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that you might send with me the materials that I need to rebuild the gates and fortify the city. So he, he says, 
Send me and give to me. So Nehemiah had been thinking about this for quite some time as he prayed. And, you know, often we'll pray but not plan because we don't necessarily expect God to answer our prayers. Sometimes we plan and we don't pray because we're going to manipulate circumstances to the end that we want to, that we want to accomplish. But Nehemiah both prayed and planned. Man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. I want you to think about it like this for a moment. Trust in God enough to plan. Love God enough to change your plans. Think about it for a moment. Trust God enough to plan. Love God enough to let him change your plans. So he asked the king for the necessary resources. He asked the king for documents to, uh, to make the journey. And that's exactly what the king does. And then I want you to notice thirdly how Nehemiah acknowledges God in all of this. This is God's hand at work. God working behind the scenes. God working in the life of Artaxerxes. God doing what only God could do. Nehemiah prayed and planned, but only God could open Artaxerxes' heart. So notice at the end of verse 8, And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was on me. God was on him because despite his circumstances, he kept doing what he needed to do, what he ought to do, with the right kind of disposition and demeanor. He worked hard. Although he had risen to the highest levels of the Persian government to become the right-hand man to the king as his cupbearer, Nehemiah had a passion for God. He had a love for God. He served Artaxerxes, but his love and devotion was only to God. And as he prayed to God, God was working. He didn't see it until God opened up the door. But until he saw God open that door, he kept doing what he ought to do, praying, planning, trusting, loving. And then when God opened the door, he was ready to walk right through it. Well, let me give you just a, a couple of final thoughts that I think can maybe prepare us as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. You may be working a job where you're playing second violin. Or from Eastern Kentucky, where I am, you're playing second fiddle. And you're finding it tough to always be in second place. Or maybe even tougher, you're not even given a violin. You, you come behind the violinist and you, you tune their instruments and you care for their instruments. You're not, even, you're not even in the orchestra. But you're absolutely thoroughly convinced you could do a better job than the person that sits in the second chair or the first chair. You're absolutely convinced that you could run that office more smoothly and more effectively than your supervisor, who is demeaning to people, crass, cruel, inconsiderate, and unkind on their best days. And yet, you find your heart filled with criticism about them. And you find your heart embittered toward them. 
You'll find it easy to criticize a person you don't pray for. You'll find it easy to criticize a person that you don't intercede on behalf of. But let me suggest to you that what I once heard a pastor say I think is really true. You'll find it virtually, virtually impossible to criticize a person that you pray consistently and fervently for. Because what happens is sometimes God changes you before he changes the person. God changes your, your heart before he changes their heart. That God does something in you and then he does something in them. I'm not talking about a week or a month or two months. Try three, four months fasting and praying and interceding and you'll find that the critical spirit and disposition and animosity decreases and diminishes over time. And you'll find rather than criticizing that person, you'll be sympathetic toward them. You'll, you'll have a change of heart toward them. Don't try to manipulate them or coerce them behind the scenes. Pray for them. Second, as I mentioned earlier, trust God enough to plan. Love God enough to allow Him to change your plans. You know, often God puts his plans in our hearts and God allows us to see those plans come to fruition. But sometimes the plans that are in our hearts are good plans and we even think they're God's plans and they may be God's plans for us up to a certain point. But we've got to give God enough freedom and we've got to give God enough room to change our plans. Trust him enough to plan for your future. Love him enough to allow him to change your future. You know what we see here in Nehemiah is a principle that we find throughout the Bible. That God will move mountains and God will accomplish his will in the lives of his people. God had made a promise to Adam and Eve that one day there would come one that would crush the serpent's head. He, he repeated the promise in, in similar terms to Abraham and then to David. It was a promise that there would one day come, there would come one, from the, a lion from the tribe of Judah who would crush the serpent's head. That promise wasn't fulfilled in a week or a month or a year or a century. Century after century after century, the people of God waited with great anticipation, trusting him, loving him, serving him following him because they had a promise. Galatians says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. The mountain that Nehemiah saw moved when Artaxerxes opened up the door to, to allow him to request to go to Jerusalem in a comparable way, a greater way, a more magnificent way, a way that's really beyond comparison. He moved a mountain when he sent his son to be our savior. Up to that point, sin was given provisionally. Genuine, authentic, eternal forgiveness of sin couldn't come through bulls and goats, but only through a sinless son. And at the time that God knew best, God sent his son Peter recognized it in Acts chapter 4. This is what Peter said. 
For truly in this city there was gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. If God took Caiaphas, a high priest that was nothing more than a a thug and a criminal, and he took Pontius Pilate, an anti-Semitic bigot who 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 thought nothing about murder and putting people away. If God can move people like that, God can move the mountains in our lives. But let me say this, if he never moves that mountain, there's been a mountain that he's removed once and for all, and that's the barrier that existed between us and him, and that's what the Lord's Supper is about. That's the most important mountain, that's the most important barrier, that's the most important issue that we will ever face, and that is the barrier that stands between us and God. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment, that's what we need to focus on, that's what we need to think about, that's where our hearts need to be moving But as we prepare to move in that direction, maybe this morning you just need to stop before we partake of the Lord's Supper and say, Lord, there's a a man or a woman in my life. There's There's a circumstance and situation. I see it as a mountain, and I've been critical of them. I've loved you enough. I've trusted you enough to plan. I haven't loved you enough to allow you to alter my plans. And so as I pray in just a moment, maybe what you'll say in the quietness of your heart is, Lord, Lord, I'm not going to criticize them. I'm going to pray for them. Or maybe what you'll say is, I'm, going to, I'm not only going to plan, I'm going to give you my plans to allow you to alter them because I love you. And let me say this, if, there, if the Lord brings somebody to your mind that you're embittered or critical toward, you don't need to go and tell them. You just confess it to the Lord. Because the problem isn't them, the problem is you. The problem is you've embittered yourself toward them by not praying for them. Now, maybe they are a problem. I can remember uh, many years ago a, a lady coming to me and said, Listen, Pastor, I want you to know I've been embittered toward you for about five months, and I want to confess that and ask you to forgive me. Well, immediately I thought, well, I wonder why she's embittered. And I almost got ready to ask her, and, and the thought came to my mind, Well, if I'd sinned against her, the Lord would have convicted me. So I said to her, Well, I'm so glad that you've gotten your life right with the Lord and and that you've confessed this sin to him. And so I thank you for uh, confessing it to me and I'll pray pray for you. You don't need to go and tell somebody. You deal with the Lord and let the Lord deal with them. Uh, Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we, we recognize we are a sinful people, but the Lord's Supper is for sinful people. Sinners that have been saved by grace, washed in your blood, clothed in the righteousness of your Son, and dwelt by your Holy Spirit, whom you've adopted into your family and whom you are conforming into the image of our Savior. And so this morning, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be forgiving toward those that we are critical of, and we would become, we would become prayers rather than finger pointers. And that, Father, we would take our plans and we would lay them before you because we love you. We not only trust you, we love you. And our lives are yours. So take this time, Father, use it in our lives to strengthen us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.